0: Robert Schneider was the last person that Ken Ono expected to hear from. Oh my gosh, I had known about Robert Schneider through his music. Ken's a mathematician and a professor of number theory at Emory University.
1: Five years ago, I got an email from this Robert Schneider saying that he wanted to pursue a PhD in number theory which for me is crazy. Hey, I'm Joel Werner. Robert is a rock star. He's a lead singer of the band Apples and Stereo. You know, we don't usually look for graduate students from a pool of rock stars. This is Sum of All Parts. I thought it was the craziest thing that this man in his early 40s wants to put that career on hold and pursue a career in mathematics. And today,
0: it's the Infinite God. So this all starts when a crate turns up at Robert's recording studio. It's like the
2: kind of crate you see in old cartoons where there'll be, like, a kangaroo that's being shipped across the sea, but the kangaroo breaks out of the crate and, like, wreaks havoc. (laughs)
0: Lo and behold, before me stood a king sized mouse.
2: Maybe the kangaroo, like, gets confused for a mouse or something like that. It's, you know, and it was an old-school wood crate. We had to use a crowbar to open it. The size of that mouth! You know, it was very romantic. And when we opened it and the box fell aside, there was the most beautiful antique tape machine. We put it in place, and the first time I used it, I realised that this was the perfection of the tape machine recording technology, probably of all time.
0: As good as a tape machine sounded, it had a problem. It would
2: constantly blow out these things called diodes, an electronic component. And this was like the Achilles heel of this particular tape machine. For every one day that the tape machine worked, it would be broken down for two days.
0: To start with, the band got a local audio engineer to come in and repair the machine. But then... Two days later, he had to come back. He fixed it again, and he's like, look, I think this is just going to keep
2: happening. Uh, you know, Robert, you're going to have to learn to fix this yourself. And so in the haze of just being sort of a lo-fi, punk rock, hippie recording artist, I suddenly had to learn about electronics. And so I went to Radio Shack and I bought this book called Basic Electronics and I opened the book up and on the first page I opened to, right in the middle of the page, there was this equation called Ohm's Law. And Ohm's
0: Law is the fundamental law of electronics. Basically, it's an equation that describes in numbers how electricity flows. And it's so simple, it just has three things in it with an
2: equal sign. And when I saw this law on the page, it completely blew my mind because I realised in that moment that everything that I thought was important, everything I had tried to do that was beautiful, all of my friendships, my band, my friends that I had traded music, music with, listening to the radio, listening to records, and tapes, recording onto the tape machine, the microphones, the flickering lights, red lights flashing. All of this stuff was existing against the backdrop of the simple mathematical equation. And it's not just that. My brain was an electrical system. My thoughts and my mind somehow were being supported by this equation. And like, I'm in my studio and I'm at the microphone, like we are right now and you speak into the microphone and your voice is transformed into electricity and it goes through all of these circuits and stuff and comes back through the system into my headphones and it's going back into my ears and and there it's transformed back into electrical impulses and it goes back into my mind. It's this crazy loop of electricity that our entire existence is completely wrapped up in and all of this stuff was contained in a simple equation that was just algebra on a page. My memory of that moment is that there was like light shining down through the ceiling onto me, like golden light, like in those renaissance paintings, <laughs> like it really felt like that. It felt like there was no ceiling or sky above me, just like infinity, like pouring down this light on me onto the page. It was a very dramatic feeling. After I had this sort of epiphany with the tape machine, I was extremely enamored of mathematics instantly. So Robert starts to teach himself mathematics. And the whole time this was happening, I'm in a touring band, I'm making records and I'm in studios all of the time, and also I'm a dad. So in sort of the frenzy of life, I also was trying to sneak time whenever I could to learn about mathematics and work on these ideas.
0: Robert would be backstage, head deep in a textbook, or on a break in a studio, scribbling away in one of his notebooks. But being a muso with a maths obsession is kind of a solitary pursuit. No matter how many degrees of separation you went away from me, I didn't even know one
2: other person that was interested in math. Maybe, like, if you had a day job, but then your hobby was that you were... A solitary lumberjack, and you'd like drive out into the wilderness <laughs> miles and miles and miles away from any other human being and would chop down trees. <laughs> you know, being like a self-taught mathematician not knowing anybody, it kind of feels like it's that isolated. Like you really are doing this thing that it doesn't connect to anybody else.
0: Like a crossfade, the volume was slowly turning down on Robert's music career and mixing with this new noise, number theory. Mathematics started to infiltrate the music that Robert was making. Like, he used natural logarithms to develop this thing called a non-Pythagorean scale. You're hearing a piece composed in this scale now. Essentially, it's a brand new musical scale with new notes set at intervals that aren't found in the chromatic scale we all know and love. This intrigued the mathematics community, and Robert was invited to give lectures on music and maths at universities and colleges across the US. And it was on one of these trips that he met Ken Ono for the first time.
1: I am a professional, real-life research mathematician, which means that I spend a lot of time thinking about numbers. Deep in
0: the wilderness, Robert ran into another lumberjack.
1: Ken's really enthusiastic. He's very
2: high energy. He's kind of far out. He's a fast thinker. I can remember leaving and feeling like I was flying on math. Like, (laughs) it was the first time I had engaged in such a deep math conversation with anybody, and he ended up having me in his office for like an hour and a half, and it was a really, really wonderful experience for me.
0: So Ken and Robert hit it off for a whole bunch of reasons, but a big part of it is their shared obsession with a mystical Indian mathematician who's been dead for almost a century, Ramanujan. Much
1: of my work, believe it or not, is informed by a man named Ramanujan. He is quite an amazing figure, really. He is kind of like an incomplete prophet.
2: In the world of math, once you hear about some mathematicians, Ramanujan's name is—it comes up. If you don't know anything about mathematics, well, you know about Isaac Newton. Everybody knows who he is, you know, and maybe like Einstein. If you go one layer in, so you, like, say, have heard about people like Euler and Gauss, then you also know about Ramanujan. So, like, he's very famous in mathematics, but it's like being famous in indie music. Like, (laughs) if you've never heard of pavement, there's no way you'll ever hear of them. (laughs) (laughs) But they're one level in. So, like, if you know what indie music is, then you know who pavement is.
0: Is Is it similar in that, like, if you do know about pavement... Then, like, you really know about pavement. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't have a casual pavement fan, right? Like, you you haven't. No, that's right. If you've gotten that far in,
2: then you're too far in.
0: (laughs) Born into poverty in the south of India in 1887, Ramanujan had almost no formal training in mathematics. And yet still, over the course of his lifetime, he came up with thousands of mathematical formulas because he
1: thought that they were gifts to him from his Hindu goddess, a goddess Namagiri. At night in his sleeping dreams or when he was meditating in his temple,
2: his family's goddess would come to him in visions and would touch his tongue with her
0: finger and write equations on his tongue. Just how Ramanujan came up with these formulas is one of the biggest mysteries in mathematics. Beyond the folklore of a goddess writing on his tongue, he left behind no trace of how he actually derived any of his work. Like I said, Ramanujan was born into a poor family and paper was expensive, so he did all his calculations in chalk on a slate, wiping the slate clean as he went. It was only when he got to the final formula that he'd transcribe it from the slate into a notebook. He presented his work without any proofs. It was just a list of equations.
2: Nobody could make heads or tails of it in his era. And for the last hundred years, mathematicians have been
0: trying to work out what Ramanujan did and to prove his work. Ramanujan's work is all about unlocking the infinite, about taking what most of us think of as inconceivable and making it more knowable. He found ways of taming extremely complicated numbers
1: so that you would never be afraid of them at all. As I looked into
2: Ramanujan, I found that his story really spoke to me. He was a self-taught mathematician, he didn't have access to education, he had in fact dropped out of college. This inspired me to realize that you could take this sort of self-motivated, non-standard path towards mathematics. That's more commonly the way that artists go about it. I saw him as being the model for the kind of genius that one might aspire to, you know? Ramanujan was the mathematician that provided me with the model of how I saw that mathematics should be done. Flash forward a couple of years and I had decided that I was going to drop out of the music scene, stop touring, and go to graduate school. And if I'm gonna do that, I should probably do it now. I'm like forty. <laughs> and so like uh, over the course of a year or so,
0: pulled myself out of the music world. This is huge. Robert's a rock star. Music is his entire life. That was sort of a weird
2: or you know, it was a great time, but it's a weird time too. I almost had like an identity, sort of a um a dissociative fugue a little bit, where you have like people like, leave town and change their names and move to a different place and take on a whole new identity. I didn't have that going on, but I felt a little bit like that was going on. Because there was no crossover between my music life and my math life.
0: And it's pretty obvious who Robert's going to want to oversee this crossover, right?
1: He visited me at Emory University, and he came armed with notebooks. I couldn't believe it. Just like Ramanujan had notebooks, he must have a hundred of them by now. Ken was grilling me to see if I was
2: acceptable as a student for him. It wasn't just me coming in as a well-known musician with a math hobby. It was like me coming
1: in as a potential person he would work with. And it had a different flavor to it. The level of energy in the room. Who needs nuclear power if you have someone like Robert Schneider? He said, I don't know a lot of math. But I love beauty and I see that there is art in mathematics, and I want to come study with you at Emory. We went through his notebooks, I saw flashes of genius, and we took a gamble on him because a lot of the qualities that I see in Ramanujan, I see in Robert. Robert's completely unconventional in his thoughts, and you know, he has produced some of the most beautiful formulas that I've seen in the last four or five years. When I left that time, it was more than flying on math.
2: I mean, I was in, like, orbit, you know? (laughs) Like, it it was such a great feeling. It was a very inspiring and exciting moment for me. As I left the building, my wife picked me up, and the way she tells the story is that I got in the car, and she looked at me, and she said I had never looked so happy. (laughs) And she said to me, Honey, you're going to Emory, aren't you? And I thought about it for a second, and I was like, Oh, my God, she's right. I have never felt this happy in
0: this kind of conversation about mathematics with anybody. So Robert packs up his house and his family and he moves across the country to start a PhD with Ken Ono. And soon after this, Ken has a breakthrough, a huge result. And it's to do with Ramanujan's most mysterious work, a mystery he left to the world from his deathbed. But to understand it, we need to put it in the context of the end of Ramanujan's life. So, Ramanujan's been collecting these formulas gifted to him in his sleep by a goddess writing on his tongue, and after a while, he starts sending his work to prominent mathematicians all around the world. Now, he doesn't show any working, right, so there's no way to figure out how he derived any of his ideas. So these academics, they pretty much just ignore him. Except for G.H. Hardy, a number theorist at Cambridge University. G.H. Hardy was this amazing
2: super-mathematician of his era. Ramanujan had sent him a letter filled with mathematics. Hardy was like, I've never seen anything like this. It's so crazy that it has to be true.
0: Hardy was running on a gut feeling, and he invited Ramanujan to come to England to study with him at Cambridge. And for a period of five years, in the mid-19-teens, when
1: England was in the midst of this bloody world war, Ramanujan proved some of the most
0: astonishing formulas of the day. During his time at Cambridge, Ramanujan struggled to adapt to English culture. In particular, he found the food strange and difficult to stomach. He was frequently sick, but doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. And eventually, the constant illness got too much. So he returned to India in
1: 1919, hoping to return to good health. But he continued to do his own research... And in January of 1920, he wrote to his collaborator, G. H. Hardy, in Cambridge. And this letter begins, Dear Hardy, I'm sorry for not writing a single letter, but I've discovered this most wonderful theory. And he goes on to list examples of functions he calls mock Theta functions. And for the next 90 years, nobody knew what he was talking about. And this was very mysterious. He sent it in a letter, just a few pages long, so he didn't put any more
2: information about it. But he indicated in the letter that he had a theory. And then the next letter that Hardy got said that Ramanujan had passed away.
1: Ramanujan died, unfortunately, at the age of 32, long before he was able to explain all of his ideas to Hardy and the other mathematicians.
2: And so all that was left was the single letter that had a couple of examples. Nobody had any idea how Ramanujan had come up with them, and so these bizarre functions that Ramanujan dreamed up in a fever one imagines on his deathbed turned out to be a huge subject of study and intrigue in the 20th century.
0: And this was Ken's big breakthrough. He figured out how Ramanujan derived these deathbed functions. It was as if he'd been able to undo some of the chalk workings that Ramanujan had wiped clean from his slate. One day I walked into Ken's office and he was like, Robert, I know how to prove that
2: Ramanujan's definition of the Mach theta functions is true. I was like, oh my God, that's amazing, that's really big news. Well, it turns out that that year, 2012, was the 125th anniversary of Ramanujan's birth. There was a big festival going on all over India about Ramanujan. He's a national hero there. So we were invited by Shastra University, a modern university that is based in Kumbakonam in South India, the town that Ramanujan lived in and grew up in. Ken was invited to speak about his new work,
1: and they invited me also to give a talk on quantum modular forms. So Ken and Robert head to India. I've been to India many times, but it was thrilling to share this pilgrimage with Robert visiting some of the sites that play an important role in the Ramanujan story, when he was visiting them for the first time. I had a considerable amount
2: of work to do, which was hard because I was on anti-malaria medication that was making me kind of be in a psychedelic state the whole time I was there. So like, I, you know, I was I was there, the Ramanujan, the Kumbakonam, the, the, the Hinduism, this whole thing was all swimming around. I was having an
1: extremely surreal experience. Imagine him Walking through ruins and temples in India, soaking up the brilliant colors, the smells, and the people.
2: This is Kumbakonam. It's a town of say a hundred thousand people, maybe a few hundred thousand people, but it still feels like a village. It feels like you're in this beautiful tropical jungle. It is a
1: sacred city in South India filled with temples. It's called the Temple City. The temple that is just down the street from Ramanujan's childhood home. It's about like a block away from his house? It's this beautiful, brilliantly painted structure built from rocks that were brought from the north by elephants like 2,000 years ago that reach, I don't know, five, 600 feet into the sky. These giant stones are now blackened with age
2: engraved with crazy ancient alphabets that people don't even recognize
1: anymore. And as you peer at the top of this temple, you can barely make out the intricate carvings in the very, very top segment of it. And there'll be 80 or 100 bats flying around, swirling around the top. And all the while, you hear the rhythmic drumming of the drums that the Hindu monks are chanting to from the inside.
2: And suddenly, the sound has dropped away. There are so many thick walls of stone between you and the modern world. And you're walking into a space that's thousands of years old. Just to walk from your modern life into an ageless space like that feels extremely mysterious and deep. Ramanujan experienced this every day. As I went into his temple, I looked around at all of the patterns and designs And I felt like I was really inside a culture of infinity. Indian religion is not a religion of one god or a handful of gods, like the ancient Greek mythology or something. It's a religion of almost infinitely many shapes and forms of their deity. This sense of Blossoming, flowering things just popping off infinitely, like, like fractals. fractals branching off. This is built into the art and architecture of Hinduism. And if you look at ornate art, and tapestries, carvings, carvings, paintings, you see all of these details. Just as you zoom in, you see all of these little details. Everywhere you look, it's covered, it's covered with, with art. plants and Everywhere foliage. you look, it's bustling with animals and, and trees and, and flowers, and everything like looks like sort of a simple pattern. And as you zoom in, you, keep, you, seeing zoom, you pattern, keep seeing the same pattern repeating, but with more variety. And as you zoom in and you zoom in and you zoom in and you zoom in, and then you're on the level of the infinity, the infinitude of fractal like details all around in Indian culture, I believe that that gave Ramanujan a sense of comfort with infinite detail. So I think that the infinite variety of deities and patterns in the art and everything else must have calibrated his mind to be able to somehow feel absolutely at ease with the clutter and the chaos of the crazy mathematics that he started to think about. These were things that Western mathematicians had never even thought about before. They were still struggling with simple aspects of. Ramanujan rushed ahead and pulled in thousands of new crazy patterns that nobody had even looked for before because they were so blinded by the noise. And he was able to look through the noise, being perfectly comfortable with it. It's kind of like in the 90s, we had that magic eye art, and you'd see this like crazy complicated pattern, but if you stare inside it, suddenly it's a whale floating with a heart or something, you know what I mean? I think he would see that. I feel like Ramanujan was looking into the noise that he saw in mathematics, and he was able to look into it and blur his eyes and see into the distance and see the 3D whale that was floating. (laughs)
0: At a certain level, or maybe just with a certain mindset, mathematics becomes something different to what you study in school. Fewer rote timetables and hazily memorised formulas and something more creative, closer to an artistic pursuit, something interwoven with all of your life's other passions, all of which inform the way you think about numbers. And that's it, really. You can't escape the influence your life has on what you choose to do with it. Context is everything, so you might as well make the most of it.
2: Mathematics is like music. It is a self-contained universe of its own. When I'm writing songs, when I'm making music, most of the time I'm actually not making any sound at all. I'm just thinking, I'm listening in my head to arrangements develop and to songs that I'm writing and I'm thinking of lyrics maybe that I'm writing down in my notebook. But it's largely a silent and internal process. When I'm in the studio, I'll hear that world that I had sort of imagined coming out of the speakers and it connects in a really magical way because it's overlapping with the world that's already inside my head. You're suddenly physically able to reach into the world that was previously only mental. Mathematics is pure, it's free from the physical world. There's no constraint. The mathematics is like hearing the music in your head. It's a fully self-contained universe that you have access to in your imagination, and we only know a tiny little piece of it. Think about the set of all possible sounds that could ever be made anywhere by anything, and then think about how small music theory is compared to that. And that's what the math that we practice is like compared to the math that's out there. It feels like there's a universe of all possible mathematics. And we know this tiny little piece that we've been able to find. And that's something you see. You look off into the distance in your imagination and you can see that that's there. You can see off in the distance, fading away, these like horizons that are beyond what you could possibly know or reach.
0: Sum of All Parts is produced by me Joel Werner, Sophie Townsend's story editor, Jonathan Webb is science editor and the sound designs by me and Mark Don with thanks to Marty Peralta for his work on an earlier version of this episode. Robert Schneider and Professor Ken Ono are mathematicians at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Special thanks to Robert's bandmate and partner in crime Ben Phelan for a super interesting phone call when I first started working on this story. Jen and Robert wrote an account of Robert's trip to India for the online magazine The Believer. It's excellent and you should read it. Ken was an associate producer on The Man Who Knew Infinity, which is a feature film about the life of Ramanujan. It's also excellent and you should watch it. Get in touch if you've been touched by a number. Soap at abc.net.au. Let's make some stuff, but until then, that's it.